So uh, this evening we're continuing a series in the parables, and tonight I'm going to read from Luke chapter 18, the first eight verses. It's on page 1051 in these church Bibles. So Luke chapter 18, it's called The Parable of the Persistent Widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because of this Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Luke actually does us a big favour in this parable. He tells us why Jesus told it. In verse 1 we read, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So Jesus calls us to persevere in prayer. He doesn't want us to give up praying. He doesn't want us to give up on prayer. He doesn't want us to lose heart in prayer. And the truths that are portrayed in this parable, they're designed to sustain and help our prayer lives. So I wonder if anyone here this evening has ever felt like giving up on prayer. Have you lost heart in prayer? You can ask yourselves, why was that the case? What troubles you about prayer or about God? What situations or what circumstances led you or lead you to believe that prayer is no longer worthwhile, that perhaps it's a pointless exercise? And we need to understand that this parable speaks of prayer, especially in the context of injustice and suffering. It's true, isn't it, that we can pray, but the world doesn't seem to change. Indeed, sometimes things go from bad to worse. We can pray and sometimes our individual circumstances don't change. And sometimes they go from bad to worse. There is injustice in the world. We can suffer it in our own lives, in the workplace, in the family, in many different ways. And we hear of injustice out there in the world around, whether in our own land of England, whether further afield in the world around. So Jesus understands that we may be tempted to give up on prayer. And it's for this reason that he left us this parable. Before moving on, I do want to say that these first eight verses of chapter 18 
do follow on very directly from the last verses of chapter 17, uh, verses 20 through to 37. Uh, Sometimes whoever decided to put the chapter numbers in the Bible didn't seem to do a terribly good job. And um, it would be good if these two passages were grouped together. So in the end of chapter 17, Jesus is talking about the return of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus often uses of himself. And he compares his return to the situations of two characters from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Noah and Lot. And in both of these situations, that of Noah and Lot, they were living in a context where there was a lot of bad stuff going on, where evil was rampant, there was a lot of injustice which would have caused them personal suffering. And both had to wait for the day of God's intervention. They had to wait with persevering faith. Jesus is really saying that his disciples, his people, will have to wait for his return in judgment and salvation and they will have to endure similar circumstances. There will be a lot of injustice and that injustice causes us suffering. But we need to wait for Jesus' return with faith and perseverance. But just as Noah and Lot saw God intervene in both judgment and salvation, so we're to draw the conclusion that Jesus will also intervene in the same way, in both judgment and salvation. Jesus, who is the Son of Man, will deliver on his promises. He will appear again. And when he appears again, he will judge evil, but he will also right wrongs. He will make all things new, and he will save his people. And the parable told in chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, drives home these lessons and reminds us of the need to pray while we are waiting, even in circumstances where there is injustice, persecution, trial and suffering. And the concluding words of the parable do confirm that uh, we are talking about Christ's return. For he says in verse 8 of chapter 18, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? As we move into this parable, what I want to do first of all is ask the question, what is God like? I think that is, in a sense, at the heart of this parable. I want to highlight a danger when we read this parable, um, that we might miss out on a line of reasoning that was common in ancient times, but perhaps is less so now. It's actually possible to read this parable and to draw some quite awkward conclusions about God. It's possible to read it and to make a direct comparison between the judge in the parable and to think that God is like that judge in a wrong way. If we fall into this trap, we can end up thinking that God is some kind of grumpy old man or some kind of tyrant who only answers prayer very reluctantly just so he can get us off of his backs. That's not how the Bible represents God in any way. It's not a flattering view of God. 
And we can ask ourselves, has the church portrayed God in that way in the past or does it even do so today? I fear it may have been the case. So what kind of reasoning does the parable take? I want to put it in these terms. If in a worst case scenario something is true, Jesus is saying that in the very best case scenario we can be infinitely more confident of the same thing being true. So to apply it to the situation here, if in the worst case scenario someone can obtain justice by being persevering and persistent then we can be infinitely more confident that in our case, in the best case scenario we also will obtain justice in the same way. So let me dig into that a little bit. Let's look at the worst case scenario which we find uh, towards the beginning of the parable which we find in this judge who is not worthy of the name judge, who is not worthy of the office of judge. He is described and he even boasts, describes himself as not fearing God and as not caring about men. This is a judge where we really have the worst case scenario. It means in all likelihood he's corrupt, he's self-serving, he only gives justice if it's in his own interest to do so. He will only give justice if if he gets something out of it, be it a bribe, be it influence, and in all all likelihood uh, will dispense unjust decisions if people are paying him to do so. So we have this worst case scenario of a rotten judge. The second worst case scenario, we have a person who, given the nature of this judge, is the least likely to obtain justice from him. She is a widow in a society where women were looked down upon and valued far less than they are today. She would be amongst the most vulnerable and weakest in society. She is likely to be poor and so unable to offer a bribe. She has no members of society who seem to be male friends to support her cause, to stand with her or to represent her she and her cause would have been of absolutely no interest to this judge. And yet, as we have in so many of Jesus' parables, we have a surprise in the story. Uh, Jesus' listeners would not be expecting this in any way at all. There's a big surprise. This widow, before this rotten judge, gains justice. Why? Well, again, the parable is not very flattering about the judge. He eventually gives in simply to get rid of her. The Greek seems to suggest that he may have been embarrassed or ashamed into action. It may have been the kind of thing, well, what will my neighbours think of this riffraff banging on my door day and night? He just wants to be rid of her and so gives her what she wants. So this is the worst case scenario, but the widow does obtain justice because she persevered in making her request to the judge. And so we now now turn to the best case scenario, and we're talking about the situation where the Christian believer 
the Christian disciple is praying to God for justice to be done. And the argument runs that if this poor widow got justice from a dreadful judge, then we should be infinitely more confident of obtaining justice through prayer to God. So let's just think a moment about this best case scenario. First of all, God in the broad sense and God in Christ is, we learn from the Bible, holy and righteous. And he works out that holiness and that righteousness through justice. He is just, unlike the corrupt judge that we have been talking about. That's in his nature, that's in his character. We see it throughout the whole Bible. So God is the very best of judges. He is perfectly just. And then we know that God, in general, and God in Christ, really cares about people. And he especially cares about those who are weak and vulnerable, marginalised. God is a God of love. He is compassionate. He is merciful. Again, that's in his very nature and his character. And we see it from the start of the Bible right through to the end. So we have this best case scenario God is holy and just. God is loving and compassionate. What more can we ask? What better can we have? And then we also learn something of the nature of our relationship with this God, which is very different from the relationship of the widow with the judge. In verse 18, in chapter 18, verse 7, God's people are described as his chosen one or his elect his chosen ones in the NIV. This speaks of God's covenant commitment towards his people. We are the objects of God's gracious, sovereign choice. And the idea of being chosen or elect can trouble some Christians. Uh, We don't have time to go into it this evening. It seems to me in the Bible that when it's used, it's usually to comfort God's people. It's usually used to bring comfort to the believer. And it's certainly the case here. The relationship between God and his people is one of committed, faithful love. We belong to him. He is committed, fully committed to us. He relates to us with faithful, unchanging love. And he has made promises about our future and he will deliver on those promises. So this is the best case scenario in which we find ourselves this evening if we are believers in Jesus Christ. So given this best case scenario, we can be absolutely 100% certain that God will deliver on his promises, that he will deliver justice. The Son of Man, Jesus, will return and when he does so, he will right every wrong and make all things new. So we are to await that return by persevering in prayer. 
Just have a mini conclusion before moving on. We return to the issue in question, why not give up on prayer? Well, we need not give up on prayer because we know what God is like. He is holy and just. He is loving and compassionate. We need not give up on prayer because we know the nature of our relationship with him. He is totally committed to us. We are his chosen ones. And we need not give up on prayer because we know what our future will be. We will receive justice and resurrection and enter eternity to be with him. So far so good, but I do admit there's a bit of a fly in the ointment in this parable. When we pray, be it for justice, be it for other things that concern us, we'd like to have quick answers, don't we? We want God to act in the here and now. And this parable does seem to suggest that God will act swiftly to deliver justice. The implication seems to be that the Son of Man will return fairly shortly. Uh, We read that in verses 7 and 8. Will God, and will not God, bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's this word quickly which might cause problems to us today. Because it's now 2,000 years later and not a lot seems to have changed. We are still awaiting the return of the Son of Man. And so how can we interpret interpret this word quickly? I'm not wholly sure that what I have to say is fully satisfactory. Um, But even in the parable we have to admit that Jesus uses the word quickly rather than immediately. And there is a sense in the parable of there being a delay of not putting off forever. But yes, there is a delay, a time of wait. So there is a period implied between the prayer and the answer, which is this end of time justice. So there is waiting involved and that waiting involves persevering in prayer. Now we might want to go down the line also of comparing what we might call a divine and eternal perspective with our very temporary perspective here on earth. In other words, to God who dwells in eternity 2,000 years it's merely the blink of an eyelid and our lives are far shorter. So what might seem slow from our perspective is quite quick from an eternal and divine perspective. And this is actually the line the Apostle Peter took when he wrote to Peter his second epistle. We studied it earlier in the year. And Christians towards the end of the first century were beginning to have the same doubts and the same issues and the same questions. They expected Jesus to come quick and he hadn't come several decades later. And this is what Peter answers in chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. 
Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the idea that what is quick to God appears slow to us. I do have a third interpretation, but I'm a bit hesitant and reluctant to share it. I've not seen it in commentaries. I don't know if it's supported by the Greek. I'm not keen on innovation because I think if 2,000 years no one else has had the idea, then it's probably wrong. So I submit this to you with these caveats. But is Jesus saying that when he returns, we will obtain justice quickly? In other words, the process will be quick when he actually gets here. As I say, I just don't know if the Greeks support such an interpretation, and as I haven't seen it in the commentaries, it's unlikely that that's the correct one. I do think it's biblically true that when Jesus does return, um, it's not going to take ages and ages to put everything in place, that when he does return, he will put everything right, make everything new very, very rapidly. I think that's a fair biblical uh, point of view from the broader um, biblical perspective but whether that's what he means here is probably questionable the time is moving on I've got quite a lot more to say we've seen then that Jesus will return one day to bring justice but what about the here and now? I do want to make some digression into that. Um, from the broader biblical perspective, we do face problems of injustice personally at a national level, at an international level. These can affect our lives quite profoundly and cause pain. We can ask ourselves, is this parable saying we could just sit around and wait and pray and do nothing else? Are we should just look ahead and think that God isn't concerned about our lives and our communities and our countries today? So I just want to, if you'll allow me, give a few minutes to rapidly share some ideas. First of all, the law of the Old Testament certainly teaches that we should seek justice and uphold justice and work for justice in our societies. Given that God is by nature and character just and righteous, um, we should be seeking justice um, in our own situations. And the prophets also teach us that we should be concerned for justice, especially for justice towards those who are weak and marginalised and vulnerable. The prophets teach us that it's right and appropriate to denounce injustice where it exists and to promote just solutions in their place. And obviously prayer for justice has an important role to play in this area. Then when we read the Psalms, we can see that the Psalms teach us that we can be very honest with God 
when we suffer personally from injustice in whatever way. We can bring the situation before him, we can feel free to express the rawness of our feelings, our desire for him to vindicate us, our desire for him to intervene in some way to right wrongs and to restore justice where it's failed. Now moving on to the Gospels. Uh, The Gospels, well the Bible as a whole, teach us that we're not only victims of injustice, but to be honest, we're all unjust. We all participate in injustice, in evil, in sin, in some way, whatever we want to call it. And so the Gospel calls us to examine ourselves, it calls us to repent, to change direction where necessary, to put right wrongs where that is possible, and to seek reconciliation where that is possible. And again, prayer is clearly a part of this. But the Gospel also teaches that ultimately we can only be declared just by God or seen as just in God's sight when we are trusting in Jesus Christ and when we have been covered or clothed by his perfect justice. When we've been forgiven of sin through what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection and when we've been reconciled with the Father. We are only just in God's sight when we are in Christ through faith and when we put on, in a sense, new clothes white gowns that represent his justice and his righteousness. So what can we expect of God in the here and now and how does this relate to the future? I want to say that God is perfectly able to change our personal circumstances. He's able to change people. He's able to change us. He's able to change difficult people in our lives. He's able to bring change to communities, to countries and to the world in a way that justice is promoted, progresses and is restored. We can pray to this end. We can expect God to act. I do want to make two comments and of caveats. First of all, there's no absolute promise or guarantee that God will act in that way here and now and immediately. He is sovereign, his purposes often remain clothed in mystery. When he does choose to act and to restore justice, it's an expression of his grace and his mercy. So we are encouraged to pray in this way, to ask for his help, but we must not assume or presume that he will answer necessarily in the way that we want, uh, nor in the time frame that we would wish for. And then secondly, God's intervention in the here and now happens in a world that is fallen, that's in the grip of evil and injustice. And so any progress in justice would involve struggle against opposition and any movement towards justice will always be imperfect, often fragile, often temporary. 
Not because God is imperfect or fragile, but because people are. Sorry, I'm going over this ground rapidly. We can talk more afterwards. And throwing that back into the parable, whilst in the here and now justice is a struggle, we know that in the future, when the Son of Man returns, this will be different. There is a 100% guarantee that it will happen, that he will deliver on his promises. Jesus will return. We can be absolutely certain of that. And then when he does return, after the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, in eternity, whatever that looks like, justice will not be imperfect. It will not be temporary. It will not be partial. No, it will be everything we've ever aspired for and far better. He will right every wrong, every form of injustice and evil will be banished from the new creation as everything is made new. It will last forever. So there's just a few thoughts rapidly strung together, probably meriting a lot more explanation. As I begin to draw to a close... I just want to give some thoughts on prayer and faith. Um, Jesus asks a question, doesn't he? When he returns, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Why did he ask this and what are we to learn from this question? Well, we're living in a world, aren't we, where there, are, there is injustice, where there are trials, problems, difficulties, where these cause pain and suffering. I think it's true to say that these kind of things in our lives, they undermine faith, they put faith to the test. Have you ever had the experience of your faith being weakened, even being overwhelmed or breaking? What were the kind of questions or issues or experiences that led that to happen? I think we'll find that often related to the experience of injustice, unfairness, trials and pain. And accompanied by the observation that sometimes God doesn't seem to be doing very much about it. What happens to our faith when it comes under pressure? when it's undermined or tested by the hard things that happen in this fallen world. I think in such a situation we can go one of two different directions. We can go the direction that Jesus mentions at the start of the parable. We can lose heart and we can give up on prayer. Or we can go in the direction that Jesus encourages us to go in we can persevere in prayer. I trust that this parable helps us to see things differently and to understand the value and the importance of persevering in prayer. When injustice seems to prevail, when our difficulties seem never-ending, when circumstances seem to go from bad to worse, prayer remains important. And if prayer doesn't seem to change the circumstances or the people around us, 
I think what prayer does change, and perhaps is the most important aspect of this, is that it can preserve and sustain and strengthen our faith. Because prayer brings us into contact with the God who is there to strengthen us, to keep us, and to preserve us until the day when Jesus returns again. And so there will be that kind of virtuous circle. As we pray, our faith will be strengthened. As our faith is strengthened, we will pray and we will be preserved in that faith. We will grow in our hope, in our assurance and in our confidence in such a way that Jesus will find us ready for him and with faith when he returns. So yes, I want to suggest that it is, yes, good and important to pray for situations of injustice out there, but one of the most important reasons to pray is that as we do so, we are in the orbit of God, we are in contact with God, we are in the presence of the God who will preserve our faith and strengthen our faith in the face of all the pressures that come upon us. So to conclude, to go back to the question, why not give up on prayer? Well, we need not give up on prayer because we know what God is like. To quote from a previous sermon series, God is great, he is glorious, he is good and he is gracious. He is holy and just, he is loving and compassionate. And for all of these reasons, we need not give up on prayer. We need not give up on prayer because we know the nature of our relationship with God. God is so utterly committed to us that he has adopted us as his very own children, now and forever. And because of that extraordinarily precious and privileged relationship, we need not give up on prayer. We need not give up on prayer because we know what the future holds. We know what our destiny is, even if we're living in a fallen, dreadful, unjust world. We know we're heading towards resurrection, towards eternal life, towards the new heavens and new earth, towards the beautiful presence of God where justice and peace will prevail. We need not give up on prayer because it's in the presence of such a God as this that our faith will be sustained, strengthened and preserved as we await the day of Christ's return. So let's encourage each other to persevere in prayer with that reassurance that, yes, Christ will find faith when he returns. But part of the process of heading in that direction is that we persevere in prayer to such a God as this.